So, all right. So this first one here is on language. Okay? And as we work through it, you're going you're gonna to see some things that, uh, uh, well, why did I write this? Of course, language is important. We all know that. Uh, but you'll, uh, <clears throat> you'll see where they're going and what the, why the challenge. Most of the questions are written because they're, they've seen things in counseling that are not appropriate or where things can be done better. And so this is what this is about. So, yes, as we start out, language is extremely important to life. Grace, Grace Fellowship Church, to us, la- language is very important. Even as you, you might have noticed, even as we did uh, our, our lobby out here in the lobby, as I met with the architects, you know, they, uh, none of them were believers or anything like that. And I said to them, we are people of the Word. Uh, telling about God and God speaking to us is very important. So when they were thinking up artistic things and graphics, you'll notice all our graphics deal with things of, have words with them, because we are people that deal with words. The only one that doesn't have a graphic, the only graphic that doesn't have words with it is at the coffee center. I figured, we don't need words with that. You got that. And we, that's not that spiritual. But I know on Sunday, if we don't have coffee there, it would become a real spiritual issue. So... Uh, so, but we are people. Words are very important to us. The Lord has spoken to us. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God has endured and is enduring forever. So, in the, in the broadest sense here, language is a means by which we communicate to one another. So, spoken language has two effects. No, one of them, yes, it does communicate. Now, the other one is our own spoken words have a way of ingraining the concepts encapsulized in our own words into our mind. It's amazing. Just as I was working through the notes, and I hope tonight, as I'm working through these that, and say these things, that these will help me re- remember. So as you're speaking, even when you're speaking to your counselees, God will use it in your own life and also will convict you as you're telling your uh, counselee to do such and such, and the Spirit's then speaking to you, well, you don't do such and such, you know, and so that will impact uh, your own life. Now, the counselor can gain an understanding of beliefs and attitude of the counselee by listening attentively to repeated phrases or ideas by the, by the counselee. So, be, become a very, very good listener. Most, mostly what happens is when you begin counseling is that you will talk too much. You think that it is your job to get this person straightened out in this hour that you have. Well, uh, it's God who has that responsibility, not you. You are an instrument in his hands. But you will think that you and you have all this information, you have all this knowledge. If you're thinking like me, you're so spiritual, you can certainly help this person. But spend the time listening and listening to the things that they, can, that, that they say uh, in, uh, repeatedly. Because remember, these words that are regularly used indicate the condition of their heart. Remember, what, what the person says actually comes from their heart. You'll hear people say, something will happen, and they'll, oh, they'll realize, oh, I, I didn't mean that. 
Well, in reality, you probably really, really did mean that, and because it came out and like that, it's really showing what's in your heart. So very important to listen. In these, especially listening for repetitions, uh, the counselor uh, must look for unbiblical concepts that need admonishing. We're not going to pick everything that a person says and uh, go after it. So you, and you won't, just won't have time for that, but there's going to be certain things that you want to speak to them about. Uh, number three here, for example, a, counsel, a counselee's may regularly use the phrase, I can't. Okay? That's, that's very common, and, uh, that, and that's why I put it here in the notes for us. You'll hear, I can't. And uh, you've developed involvement with them, and uh, you, you'll, you'll want to accept a lot of things that they say. But uh, when when the can't is usually an excuse there. As you see down here next, they'll say, when you press them to do something, they'll say, I can't. And then the correct understanding is, I won't. And there's a big difference between I can't do something and I won't do something. And you, as a counselor, have to accept it on faith. And they have to accept it on faith that if God asks you to do something in his word, you may not do it perfectly uh, because nobody jumps from where they are to perfect. I mean, we're, never, we're not going to be perfect in this life. So that's not the, that, that we're going to make it there. But it certainly is a goal that we look for. But we're going to be able to make progress. So it's, it's the direction that's important, not perfection. We're not going to get perfect. But we can walk in the direction uh, that we want to go. So the counselee must be encouraged to put off this faulty belief, that's what I'm talking about, I won't, and the statement, uh, you know, excuse me, that I can't is what they want to put off with regards to anything that God has empowered them to do. And if you write a verse there, one of my favorite for me to think about and for them is the Second Peter 1, 3. You know, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He really has. Now, this, is, this next part, C, is a key thing that they, that they get at, uh, that they want to get at. And I am a... Oh, this really hit me between the, line, between the eyes because uh, I do this all the time. And I did it in just explaining it to you. When I said it hit me between the eyes, I used metaphorical language. That is not reality. Nothing hit me between the eyes. And so what they want to have you do is they want you to not use that language in counseling because it is fuzzy language and people don't know. I didn't realize I did it so much until when I started speaking overseas and I had a translator. And I, I mean, I, had, I have great translators. But... They're not used to all the crazy things that I've picked. I think Beth and I have lived in nine different... We've been married 31 years. We've lived in nine different states. There's all kinds of little sayings that have different things, different places, and I use all these all the time without realizing it. And they had no idea what I was talking about or how to translate that. Or they try and, and start... Trans well, okay, it was hit between the eyes. Hit between, so then, it, 
Well, that, what is that? Because the, they think, well, I'll explain what it means to be hypnotized. No, that uh, somehow I got hit by a ball or something like that. So, uh, so they don't want us to use that. So here under I, the problem with metaphors is they do not communicate literally or accurately what is actually happening. So you want your language to be very clear. Jay Adams refers to the example of a counselee saying, oh, tension exists between him and another person. In reality, there's no tension between two people. Tension exists in muscles or it ex- exists in uh, materials, you know, like steel or uh, something like that. Conflict is what needs to be dealt with, not tension between the people. See what, you know, we want to use biblical terms and we want to be clear about what the issue is. Metaphorical language is just not a problem for the counselee, but for the counselor. And that's what I was talking about myself. Uh, I use, I for one, use euphemisms to communicate ideas when uh, uh, teaching. You know, I use things like, oh, you know, they'll say something great. And I'll, I'll say to them, oh, that's a great idea. You can take that to the bank. Well, I think we all sort of know that. Oh, that was, means that's a good idea. You can take it to, it's like old savings certificate. You took it to the bank, cashed it in. It was valuable. That's good. Uh, no, I, I should say something like, you know, that, that is a fine biblical idea. You know, keep thinking that way. That's what they're looking for to reinforce it in that way. Um, yes, they can create v- vivid word pictures, and you might use that. But if you're going to use vivid word pictures uh, and these euphemisms, you're going to use these metaphors, make sure you explain what they are. And it might be uh, helpful to use them. That gives another way uh, to explain it. But make sure you do uh, explain what they are. Uh, but now I understand that their use may not be beneficial in counseling, I also must communicate accurately for the counselee to understand the biblical truth being presented. You understand. They don't necessarily understand. So the idea here is do not use this language unless you clearly explain it. Another red flag regarding language is a counselee using unbiblical language to describe sinful behavior. This is also very a very common. I just uh, um, have the privilege of just working through a couple that had become uh, uh, strained over uh, adultery uh, that invaded uh, their marriage. And uh, the uh, spouse that was involved in the adultery, it, uh, it uh, it was actually weeks, sessions, before that person would ever actually use that word, as they know what the Bible says about it. But as you read through the notes here, if you call it an affair, if you call it a friendship, if you call it these things, uh, meeting another person, you call it, the, it doesn't have that weight to it. But you want to call it what the scriptures call it. Unbiblical language may disguise for the counselee the sinfulness of their behavior. In years past, you know, we could have looked forward 
to attending an affair. I mean, you, uh, we talked that way. Well, I'm going to go to an, uh, going, you know, it's, uh, our neighborhood is going to have a, a backyard party. Well, I'm looking forward to going to that affair. Well, we wouldn't use, you know, that language sort of dropped off uh, the scene, but it still has a positive connotation uh, to it. Uh, today, the word is used on us for having an adulterous uh, relationship. Not, this behavior should not be called an affair, but call it adultery. Call it what it is. Then the counselee can clearly see what God thinks of this in Scripture. Because when you open the Word of God, it doesn't list there that, you know, it talks about greed and sexual immorality and all these things that if you're practicing these, that you're not part of the kingdom of God. Well, in that list, it doesn't have a fair, you know. So a person thinks they're fine, but it certainly does have adultery. And so you want to be able to use that kind of language. So in summary, in counseling, all the parties on both sides, you help them to be very accurate in what they're saying and uh, specific in what they're saying. And then you also want to be both literal and biblical for the benefit of truly helping the counselee. Because many, many of the things that you'll, you'll want to help them as they're working through issues in their life is to be specific. Uh, uh, there'll be times where uh, someone will say, "Well, um, I I didn't tell I didn't tell the truth uh, last week." Well, when you're talking to them, you it's not that they didn't tell the truth; it's that they lied. Good. And what is it that you? lied about. You know, I've had people tell me, well, I just told a, what is it, a white lie? And that sort of didn't matter. Well, the, it does matter. And it had big implications. So you want people to be, when they're, they're speaking to you and you're speaking to them, very specific. Well, what was said? Well, I said that I would be at this place at this time, but I knew I wasn't going to be there. I lied totally about uh, where I was going and what I was was doing. So as they're specific about their actions and their behavior according to God, then it as I've seen that happen, it's more likely that the Spirit of God will use that and work with them and to work to change their heart. If it's out in fuzzy land, there's just no way to, to touch it. You know, it's like if you go to the doctor and you tell the doctor, walk into the office, well my arm hurts. Well, there isn't much that he or she can do for you. I mean, when, when does it hurt? Where does it hurt? When you get into specifics, then healing can happen. It appears the same is very true in counseling, as you work to help that person be specific, literal sense. Okay? Does that help? All right. Hopefully that will get you enough to get going. Now let's look at uh, 14 together. And... And go to Ephesians four, seventeen through twenty-five. So let's take, uh, let's open up our Bibles to the the passage here. Ephesians four, these are key.
So, Ephesians 4, 17 through 25. Now, the key here in your scriptures is to look at verse 22. And you're all working probably from a number of different translations. But somewhere in 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self. Uh, The key here is the putting off. You want to uh, circle that or mark it. Then, jumping down a verse to 24, and put on the new self. Circle or mark the put on. So that's what we're talking about. There was the natural self, the way it used to be. Now, 2 Corinthians 5.17, you know, you're a new creation. The old has gone and the new is here. And now you can live in a new way. So that's what they're talking about uh, here. So let's read through the notes, different places, uh, circle, make highlights of it. Now, the Lord's salvation of his children includes being justified, a definitive sanctification, and progressive sanctification. We instantly receive all our justification at the time of faith, alone, through grace alone, by the saving work of Jesus Christ alone. We've talked about that. The definitive sanctification is the truth that sin no longer has power over us. Before we came to faith, We couldn't help sinning. We didn't have power to really change our character from not sinning. But now, it's a different story. It no longer has that kind of power on us. So progressive sanctification is attained through our cooperation over time with the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18 and 1 Timothy 4.7 and 8. So go ahead and keep a pencil or a pen in Ephesians, but I do want us to go to 2 Corinthians 3:18. 2 Corinthians And the reason I'd like to to do that, friends, is that the first verses we worked at and looked at, the Ephesians verses, where it's the put off and the put on, that is mainly work that, that we're doing. We look to see what it is that we need to get rid of, put off. And we look to see what it is to put on. Hopefully the Spirit's helping us there. But in this whole transformation process, it is the Holy Spirit's main work that he is doing uh, with us and among us and in us. And so 2 Corinthians 3.18 is not the most popular verse in the world. 
Um, and you might not have been that familiar with it. But it is really, really key in biblical counseling to not forget this verse. Because here it, it very clearly says um, that the Holy Spirit is doing a transforming work in all believers. That is what should be happening. And so uh, it's a little hard to translate into English. There's what they call a lot of participial phrases going on here. But uh, th this translation here that I'm working from, and we all, that's us. And the we is the subject of the sentence. Then there's some phrases. Who are with unveiled faces reflecting the Lord's glory. Now here's the verb. We all are being transformed. If you are a believer and you have not quenched the spirit work in your life, you are being transformed. And what you're doing is you're helping the counselee. It could be that they, the way they're responding, they have quenched the Spirit's work in their life. And you are helping them open up to His power working in their life so that they can be transformed. And here it says, are being transformed into His image. Well, the image they're referring to is God or Christ's uh, image with ever-increasing glory. We, the counselee, are growing to be more and more like Christ, which comes from the Lord. Typically, when we see the Lord, we say, oh, well, they're referring, it's referring to Jesus, but not in all cases. And here it specifically says, the Lord is the Spirit, and that's his work that's being done. So I don't want us to always just camp on Ephesians 4. So let's go back to there. If you camp on just Ephesians 4, you can become what we would call a behaviorist. All you want to do is just change someone's behavior and make them more socially or churchily, you know, accepted. Certainly that's churchly is not a word, but you know what. And that's not what we want to have happen. We want the person to become more like, like Christ. And, but there is a process this Ephesians 4 is where there's a cooperation on our part with what the Spirit's doing. All right, so let's work through the notes together. But, uh, so one means of growth, which God wants us to exercise, is contained in Ephesians 4, 17 through 25. A parallel reference is in Colossians 3. And there in Colossians 3, um, uh, Colossians 3, 12 uh, Let's see, what does Colossians 3 do? It says, as, um, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. There it's a slightly different phrase that's used than put on. It says clothe yourselves, like putting on the, the clothes when you... Uh, wake up in the morning as you live your life. So the same things are being said in Colossians 3. With these verses, God through the Apostle Paul speaks strongly. Uh, in Back to Ephesians 4, 17, verse 17, against Christians living as the rest of the world does. 
uh, same uh, in verse 18. This way of life, which is according to the sinful nature, is characterized, working through verses 18 and 19, ignorance, hard hearts, sensuality, and continual lust for more in those verses. Since Christians do not initially come to know Jesus through a darkened, sensual heart, they will not progress in actually knowing him through continually exercise this old nature, verses 20 and 21. So your role is to help them not live naturally. Your role is to help them live in the new life that the Lord has given them there. Therefore, we are told in no uncertain terms to put off that old self, verse 22. Now, the Lord would not have told us to do that if we could not make some progress in that. Uh, We're not going to be perfect, but we and they can. This old self is replaced by our new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, if you just take a moment there and think about that, since you have been born again, you are now created to be like God. I mean, uh, that's, that's unbelievable for us to now have that place in his creation and all the universe. Nobody, no other of his creation do we know about that have that kind of position. We're created to be like him. Our identity is now that we are children of God. Christ is referred to as a child of God, a son of God. He's the first fruits. There's places where he's referred to as our brother. It's unbelievable the place that we have. And as you help your counselee, yes, there's behavior, things that need to change, but there needs to be a change of them realizing who they really are in Christ. And so the spending of time there is always uh, worth it. So for this, of course, thank God. And to think that each Christian has a new self, which is actually like God, is more than any of us could initially imagine. And then referring to Ephesians 3.20, you know, things happening beyond what we could ask for or even imagine. So remember, this here, Ephesians 4, this is our wrestling to cooperate with the Spirit's work that he says he's doing in 2 Corinthians 3.18. You see the parts? How it fits? Okay. This lifelong process of putting off and putting on, yes, it is lifelong. I worked in my journal last week, and I think I came up with uh, three, if not, uh, I wrote down three. I've come up with another one. Four things that I need to work on in terms of putting off and putting on in, in my life. It's something you will always work on until he calls you home to glory. Yields godliness if we are also being made new in the attitude of our minds, that's the verse 23 that's stuck between verse 22, which is put, put off, 24, put on, and right in the middle is this being made new in the attitude of their minds. 
the counselee sitting with you, one of your roles is to help them being made new in their thinking, that they're starting to think biblically. The assignments that you give them to read in the Word of God, to read good theological material, to memorize Scripture. This is all trying to help them be made new in the thinking of their mind, get their mind out of the ruts that it's in that are not uh, God-honoring, that are not pleasing to God, and to be uh, like the new nature that he's given us. So that's where uh, uh, that fits. Okay. One, to know uh, what it is that God actually wants us to diligently put off and put on in our attitude and what actions please him, we must renew our minds. We have no idea what pleases him if we don't have a, a mind that's renewed. By saturating ourselves with the word of God, we're familiar with Second Timothy three, sixteen and 17, all scriptures, God breathed, Useful teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the woman of God, the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Fortunately, as we diligently pray and absorb and do the word, the Holy Spirit will more than help us along the way toward a godly life. The circle there, that Second Peter 1 one three, we have His power to work through this progressive sanctification. All right. So those are some of the things that they're looking for uh, in these verses, Ephesians four, seventeen to twenty-five. Now, if you're like me, and as I've watched and helped other counselors, they you will want to jump immediately to these verses and just jump all over of all these things that you see they need to put off and they need to put on. Okay. Remember, there are three chapters in Ephesians before that. Make sure they have a good handle on those three chapters before you do Ephesians 4. Uh, or at least at the same time that you're working through. I mean, their life might be so just crazy that you've got to go to Ephesians 4 pretty quick, you know, because they're just drowning and killing themselves in the things that they're doing. But don't neglect, you know, what's happening in just in the beginning of Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, 3. You know, all the spiritual blessings are yours being adopted. You know, being predestined, being called, being loved. All these things to understand who and what they have in Christ. And that it's only because they're in Christ then that they'd want to and can live this new life that's talked about in Ephesians 4. So that's what they're looking for in this, this question. All right. Now, let's see. We've got some time here. Let's go on to this one here. Uh, depression. <clears throat> this is a, a key one that you're going to uh, deal with. And it's going to be real hard to know, is this person sitting in front of me? Are they just extremely sad? 
or are they depressed? They, uh, you know, if you have clinical depression, you're sleeping a lot. You're, or you're not sleeping at all. I mean, it can be cr- just crazy. Uh, clinically depressed, you have let re- relationships go. Well, how many relationships do you have to let go before you're clinically depressed? Uh, you might not be doing well in your job. I mean, how bad do you have to be not doing your job before you're really classified as depressed? So it's, it's pretty uh, slippery there of whether someone's in extreme sadness or uh, depressed. But what we're going to... So we're not going to worry so much about making sure we can define, is this person... You know, clinically depressed, as it says according to the DSV-5 documents? Or what, what is really going on that a person gets to this? So in your notes, you're going to see some diagrams. Do you have diagrams? Yes, good. I'm going to try and explain these diagrams to you, and then we'll go through the notes and things like that. And these diagrams are right out of J. Adams' book. And in fact, let me go to your last page of your notes, because as I was reviewing this, <clears throat> when I review your notes before I go over them, before I wrote, before I gave them to be printed for you, I, I went all through them and, and re, rewrote them, because I really didn't have any notes like this before. Wrote them, and then, to, then over the last couple of days, I went through them all again, looked up the passages, thought about them, thought about the examples, and looked up the references, and I have an, there's an error on the very, very last page at the bottom. Uh, I have written there page 175. Well, I couldn't find it on page 175, so it's on page 375. Uh, do you have something there that says reference the Christian Counselor's Manual? At the very last page? Very last page of the notes on depression. Very last page on notes of depression. Yes, page one. Yeah, right there at the bottom. Yes, so that's where this diagram comes from. I did not think this up. Jay Adams did early in the ball game. And uh, does it does it cover everything about counseling? Excuse me. Does it cover everything about depression? Uh, no, it does not cover everything about depression. Does it cover something that? Uh, of a deep sadness and depression that we will see regularly? Yes. Uh, is, it, is it helpful? Yes, it is helpful. But you may be able to add a whole lot more to it yourself. But So let me explain it to you. Let's not look at the notes. Let's just look at the diagram, and I'll try and talk you through. Then we'll work, we'll work through the notes. So the depression... Uh, it says here, depression diagram illustrating relationship between problems, responses, and feelings. So, on the as you're looking at that uh, funny worm there, look on the left hand. Look at the left hand side and look at the top. Okay, the top are good feelings, right? and feelings matter. Uh, we don't want to we don't want to live our life just by good feelings, bad feelings. We want to live feel. We want to live our lives according to truth. But we anticipate that Christians will have good feelings. I mean, uh, 
rejoice always. Rejoicing, yeah, that is a good, that's, that's a good feeling. I mean, uh, peace that God gives, that's, that's a good feeling. We want those. We want to have a sense even now from the Lord, from the Spirit, that uh, well done, good and faithful servant as we serve. We just want to have this happening now. We want to have a, a sense of closeness with the Lord, the psalmist said. But it's for me. The nearness of God is, is my good. Feelings are important. We are not the frozen chosen in that uh, feelings don't matter at all. And God uses feelings. We talked about these in another section. We talked about how guilt, actu- guilt feelings are actually very positive for us. And let me just review that. Remember, there's a question on guilt. We talked about that. Remember, um, just as when I put my hand on that hot stove that I didn't know uh, was hot, and uh, I pulled my hand away. Now, we would say, well, that wasn't good that I got burned, but it was a whole lot better that I felt that heat and didn't leave my hand there, and I, I pulled it out to keep the damage as minimal, as little as, little as possible. And so I would, we would say that because I could feel that heat, uh, I could then move my hand to get out of danger. The same thing is why God gives us guilt feelings. They are to come from a conscience that is biblically informed as when we're doing something that is not pleasing to the Lord, then it is not good for us. We will have guilt feelings. When we have those guilt feelings, it will signal to us, oops, uh, I thought what I did was right. I thought what I was thinking was okay. But I have these feelings that are indicating that this is not good. And it then forces us, motivates us to examine our lives to see where am I missing the mark with the Lord. So that's what Gilbert. So what's happening here on the left-hand side, at the very top, let's say, you have a, uh, you have a choice. Do good or sin. You sin. Okay. You start spiraling down away from good feelings, and you have what is happening. Guilt feelings start to occur. Well, you're, you're into this, this sin now. Maybe it was, you know, you were, you were uh, flirting with somebody at work, okay? And, and then, it, then it starts, you know, making arrangements to have, uh, you know, lunch together. You see spiraling down here in the guilt feelings. And then uh, as it goes on, and you really get into the sin, you're down here at the bottom. You know, you, you light, if you really are a believer, you're just going to be uh, have a sense of depression, and you're going to feel terrible. Now, what you're going to want to do as a believer is to pay attention to this and to, as a, on your first top diagram there where it says bad feelings, you're going to want to move to the right where the dashed line is and you want to start acting rightly. You want to repent from your sins. You want to do what is pleasing to God. You want to break off this relationship. You want to confess this to, to someone in your church. You want that person then to hold you accountable. You want to go to your spouse 
when it is time and tell them the whole story and ask them for forgiveness. And then you spiral out. Even that is so hard to do these acts that are right, you spiral out and you then have good feelings. So you see what he's, he's saying here? And where a lot of depression that we will see uh, comes from and is a, a good indicator of what's happening in the life, person's life. So, as now let's look down on this, the, the diagram that's at the bottom of your page. What's at the bottom of the page is basically looking at the top diagram, looking down at it. So, when you're on the left-hand spiral on the top diagram, when you look down at that, you, you start in the center where it says labeled as a problem. That's at the top. There's a problem, and then as you, you move around that spiral, you're going down, there's a sinful response. Okay? Sinful response is, oh, okay, there is an unresolved conflict with someone I'm having in the church. Then as it goes on, you don't do anything with that uh, conflict. You still have these guilt feelings. It moves around to an additional complicating problem. Oh, I start not attending events at church because I don't want to run in to this person I have an unresolved conflict with. So it just keeps getting worse, and you spiral down, and the etc. is sort of at the, the bottom there. Then... You come over to the other little snail diagram, and here you pick it up where it has additional complica- complicating problems, and then you're, you're spiraling upward as you deal with the problem in a repentant way. So that's what this diagram is, is about. Hopefully that uh, clears up some of what's uh, going on here. And you can look on those pages in Adam's book, about it. But let's look at it here. Um, Some of the things that are said. Definition. Depression is an unresolved guilt feelings caused by counselee's sin. If you look it up in Webster's, it's just going to... I looked it up, uh, let's see, yesterday, and it just talked about uh, depression being, you know, these extreme feelings of uh, uh, sadness and so forth. we are stating a little bit more here that these feelings of sadness are coming from unresolved guilt feelings. The progression begins when a problem of of life is responded to in a sinful manner. You're at the top. There's things that happen to us. We have financial reversals. We have hormonal changes. You know, there's poor health comes or loss of a close companion. These These are tough things. These are tough things to take. Uh, these are natural, naturally caused feelings of sadness. Now we have a choice. We have a choice to respond to the problem, either biblically or unbiblically. Unbiblically is sinfully. If the response is sinful, then guilt feelings will develop. If a person remains unrepentant toward this sin, complicating problems come in. To their life. Okay. You have uh, someone has a loss of a spouse. I mean, that, that is, you've lived with this person 40, 50 years. That's a, a terrific loss. And this is especially uh, applicable to men 
and where I used to serve, uh, we were an older congregation, and I'd watch this time and time again talking to the men. You know, you are not going to make it a year without, you know, moving in with somebody. And uh, just to warn them right up where their feelings are going to be, and you see it. You know, they've been part of the church, husband and wife, the wife dies, they uh, are very lonely. That is, that is true. It is extremely uh, lonely time, extremely painful time. And they, they meet someone who is not a believer, okay? Very outgoing person. Well, uh, where they typically would have counseled other people, you know, you don't date people who are not, well, we're not dating, we're just spending some time together. We're both lonely and this and that. It becomes a romantic relationship, you know. Then a lot of these older people, they don't get married for financial reasons. There's all kinds of things, even people in the church. And they just sort of move in with each, each other. Then this person you don't see at church anymore. So you just see it spiraling down. They might have taken care of their loneliness, but the way they're feeling in, inside, these guilt feelings. So these are, it can happen in some very sad things that set it up, but the Lord will give us power to respond appropriately. So I'm down here at the, where it says, life, actions, and feelings have spiraled down to a low point. Guilt feelings become worse, giving rise to a depression. Example, seeds of depression occur after a person has a financial reversal simply by responding with self-pity, grumbling, anxiousness, overworking. No, the stock market has done well these last years. But in 2008, I mean, it was, a lot, it was rough for a lot of people, especially if you had retired then or thinking about retired and you just lost a third of your, your resources. Okay? These are typical responses to such a situation, but they're still sinful and not appropriate for God's people. At that time, a lot of people lost their jobs uh, or their salaries were cut. Biblical responses would be trusting God, contentment, working diligently, and continuing to fulfill one's responsibilities in all areas of life. If the sinful response continues... God has guilt feelings result as a warning that something is wrong. If these are unheeded, the onset of depression is just ahead as further complicating problems arise. So in our example, since we're working, in our example, since he was working so much, the other responsibilities of life began to pile up. So this person, and then he lies to his wife, that certain, certain responsibilities, certain ones are under control. Now the sin of lying, Ephesians 5, 4, 20, has entered the mix along with additional feelings of guilt. As this pattern of sinfully addressing life problems continue, then depression sets in. It was bad enough having a financial reversal. But then in the responses, you still have the financial challenges but then you're then depressed uh, from it. Biblical example of unalleviated depression, we see what happened to Cain. Right? 
He didn't offer a gift that was honoring to God. Instead of repenting about it, you know, he went after you know, his brother. He let anger get a hold of him. God has a very simple plan for alleviation of depression. But to begin exercising biblical responses to the problem. Even the smallest challenge or problem should be answered with yielding to God's will. This is key here. If you circle the smallest, <clears throat> you have someone that's depressed. And to you, it might be very, very obvious what's going on. And you want to get them all the way up here, and you want to get them all the way out of their sin in just, you know, immediately. It doesn't often happen that way. It is taking small baby steps of moving in that direction. So if you can start help them making steps in that direction that are positive, it will be very good to help them spiral out. Up to spiral. Now, contrary to popular understanding, do not directly address negative feelings themselves. So a lot of times, you know, personal, they'll, why, they can, why they've come to you is that they feel so badly. Remember, I think last time we were together, I told you about the lady who came to me from ladies' Bible study because her lover had told her, you know, that the night before something was all over. Well, they wanted... See, so your job is not to attack, you know, helping the, the feelings directly. It's to help having godly behavior to, to move, them, move them up. Example cited above. Confessing, having this person... Confessing that one lied about having taken care of the family responsibilities would be a great place to start healing of the will and emotion. Then the family responsibilities should receive the attention that they deserve. Now he's starting to spiral out of making sinful decisions with the accompanying feeling of depression. For all to be well at some time, he must recognize his idol of the heart. Now, it also becomes clear that, you know, yes, there was a financial uh, reversal, but not everyone who has a financial reversal in, in the church just goes crazy and neglects all responsibilities, starts meeting, stops meeting with the guys, stops meeting, doing things at home, and just working all the time. Is that, okay, this person in the financial reversal had a, a false idol had an idol of the heart. False worship was the underlying cause of all their sin. As they were putting their, their identity, their value in what their bank account was, what their identity came from having this, you know, six-figure job, and they were devoted to 50% of that. With all sin, the response should be to confess and repent, followed by putting off and putting on. Worry needs to be replaced with thankfulness, contentment, generosity. By God's grace and in his kindness, depression is alleviated with joy being the dominating emotion. Okay? So you see how, how it works here as they're talking about uh, 
depression. And we'll talk, we'll talk some more about depression and actually with some homework uh, assignments also uh, there is one of the questions. So it's not the last time we'll work with it and all. Okay? So actually those guilt feelings are good, but the person gets to this bottom rung where they, they might have lost their job, not able to work, not get out of bed, not be able to function, and uh, they'll be coming uh, to you. Now, you talk about, uh, you have two minutes, I will tell you, I want to tell you a case uh, that I dealt with like this. In a previous church, there was a gentleman who was old, 20 years older than myself at the time, a, uh, just a model person in church. I've never seen someone serve in a church like this person served. A very godly person. Had a re- very responsible job, and he, he retired. And uh, so this was going to be terrific. He retired. They'd have all this time now to, to, to serve, even more time to serve. But there was something in his mind and in his identity that tied him to that job more than he realized it was an idol. And this guy, who was a model, I mean, this wasn't any 20, 18, 20-year-old. This was a 60, near 70-year-old with a long track record of just being a model, citizen, believer, so forth. And his behavior came psychotic, became like some schizophrenic off the street. You know, it was unbelievable uh, what happened. And uh, so his, his uh, family got me involved. They were, in the beginning, they were sort of covering it up, uh, what was going on. Then I got involved, and uh, this person, he was way down here at the, the bottom in the depression part. But what, what added to it in his situation was that his sleep patterns had become crazy. And he had, was not uh, sleeping. And he was doing uh, and got uh, really out of whack. So this is a case where I called a uh, psychiatrist, the psychiatrist, an MD doctor, explained to her you know, what was going on, was going to have him come to see her. And we talked back and forth. She was a Christian. And uh, uh, just if you could help him medically. And, let's, and so as we talked, she agreed, if we can just get him on a uh, pattern of sleeping and resting, let's see where we can go so we can at least get his mind alert enough to work on spiritual things. And God used it greatly. You know, he's doing terrifically now, but as we worked up the spiral, we had to deal with the idol of the heart and the so forth, that he had so much of his identity tied to this position that he'd given up and all that. He didn't even uh, realize it. So uh, so you will see different uh, f- uh, facets of this. So this is just a tool to help you understand when you have this person in front of you who is greatly sad, very uh, unresponsive, how can you help them? Help them take baby steps. Just reading the Word of God, making, you know, just some notes about what they read, what God said to them would be a great place to start. 